The Mourner's Bench is brought to you by Theolab Media. Christian churches have groomed us to ask fewer questions and to be fearful of difference. Many religious institutions thrive on us versus them ideologies that do way more harm than good. That's why Theolab is here, to transform how humans engage faith, spirituality, culture, and the world around them. Find out more by visiting theolabmedia.com. What is up, good people? Welcome back to the Mourner's Bench. Today, I'm here with Malcolm David for our Conversation Between Friends mini-series. We are planning to talk about our friendship, some recent tensions we've experienced, and how whiteness, white supremacy, anti-blackness, and just plain old racism have functioned and continue to function in ways that can make our relationship a challenge. But before we get too deep into that, please remember, this Thursday... We'll still release a Thursday episode. It'll be a Christmas Eve special that's full of laughs and fun. Find out why KT hates Santa Claus, yet she still allows her child to believe in him and school her in the ways of patriarchy and heteronormativity, among other things. It was really a fun episode to record, and I promise you will not stop laughing. It'll be the best thing for your Christmas Eve, so make sure you listen. Then next Tuesday, Sam and Malcolm will round out our Conversation Between Friends miniseries with an episode full of their own joy, laughter, and maybe even a tear or two. And then next Thursday, on New Year's Eve, make sure you listen for our year-end altar call featuring some of you. We talk to listeners from the East Coast to the West Coast for around an hour to hear who you're placing on the bench at the end of 2020. You all are amazing. It was great to talk with a few of you, and we hope to do more of that in the new year. So make sure you tune in on New Year's Eve to hear our year-end altar call. Now, let's get into it. Hey, Malcolm, let's just go straight there. Has there ever been a time that I pissed you off? Oh, for sure. What I do? You want like a specific moment and a specific um? Uh, if you have them, I'm just curious. <laughs> I, man, this episode is not long enough for me to recount. All oh the my god, you make me sound horrible. <laughs> you said Stockholm syndrome on our last episode. Oh, um, <laughs> didn't mean it. Um, you know what? You can leave now. <laughs> no, you can't. Stockholm syndrome. You can't do it. I know. I'm. I'm stuck. Um. That's an interesting question. I mean, I, I think any relationship that means anything to you is going to have some friction. I find myself not being so much like angry or upset as confused. I think there have been times in our relationship where there have been reminders for me of how differently we might see the world or perceive a particular event or experience. And those are surprising to me. I think what I find surprising about that is there are a lot of ways in which I feel like we're actually really similar to each other. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a funny thing to say because on the surface, we are radically different from one another. But in terms of how we tick, what we value, how we kind of move through the world, I, I think, and I mean, you may disagree with me, but it's surprising to me how similar we are to each other. The times that I have felt friction are oftentimes more closely connected to a kind of confusion than to like a angry, fuck you, you know, you've done something wrong or hurtful or whatever. It's a kind of, I didn't see that coming. And that's, I mean, that's really funny, frankly, that, yeah. you know, given all of the, the differences that exist between you and I, the tension oftentimes comes from a surprise that we're not on the same page, which is fascinating when you stop and, and think about it. Yeah. My therapist husband has echoed this, right? To be like, there's a lot of similarity there. 
I don't know if I would call myself being angry with you ever. Like many humans and many men in America, I have not cultivated a deep emotional awareness. Oftentimes when I'm feeling something, it manifests as anger. Because I take relationships so seriously, if there's tension or if there's something that's going on, I value the space to be able to say, hey, here's the thing. Here's what you've done or said maybe unintentionally that upset me. Can we work through that? The first time that I experienced this is actually recently. There was a tension and I perceived a distance between the two of us. The starting point was in many ways the mourner's bench and the tension was present. And I kept saying, hey, are you okay? Hey, are you good? Are you sure you're good? Are you for real sure you're good? No, like how are you? Oftentimes the only way that I know how to communicate, especially when I'm feeling triggered or when I think somebody else is feeling triggered. The only way that I know how to express empathy is by repetition. And so for me, like the repetition of the question, sometimes within a five minute period, like, how, what, like, are you okay? Are you sure you're okay? Are you sure you're good? And the response was like, yeah, I'm good. Bruh, you ain't good. And so I think how that was manifest inside of me was hurt. One, because you a straight white man, I don't fuck with too many of y'all. And so my, my black gay self in America is like, fuck all of them, right? Oh, okay. I done taken the time to build a relationship with this person and I'm trying to check on him, make sure I haven't caused him any personal offense or done any, like, and he keep telling me he good and I know this motherfucker ain't good. Fuck him. I ain't gonna ask no more. I'm not sure how to explain all of this succinctly to, to people who were listening, but I know exactly what you're talking about. So when you were asking that question, there was a part of me that felt like, I know you well enough and I'm invested deeply enough in this relationship to say what's going on. There are not many people that I would seriously consider giving an honest answer to that question. And I don't, I don't mean that to be arrogant or to say I don't need people or to project this kind of like independence. I, I just, I mean that very plainly. Like there just are not a lot of people who ask me that question and I like my internal reaction is to try to answer it honestly. Mm -hmm. You are one of those people for me. And so it was interesting when you were asking that question a few weeks ago, a, a month ago, I think what I was realizing in that moment, and that, I mean, there was a lot going on and we've talked about this. I mean, part of it was just on a practical level. I was really stressed out. There's a lot happening with family and personal stuff. And, you know, and, and I think that's a lot of what I told you about, man, I'm, I'm just, I'm stressed about all these other things. And all of that is true. I think too, part of it for me is, are there questions or struggles or whatever that like, they just have to be handled by yourself? Yeah. There was a lot sort of stirred up in my heart. And as much as I felt like yeah, this is a person that I can trust. This is a person who I like, I want to know what's happening in my life. Even with that being said, I think I was kind of going through this season where it was like, you got shit you need to work out for yourself. And it's your problem. Saying like to myself, man, you, like you got some shit that something is not adding up. Something is not working your internal insecurities, your fears, your feelings. There is something here that, that just doesn't add up. And I think what happened for me a couple of weeks ago was this feeling of like, I need to get my shit together before I can engage this person fully. And I guess the question that raises for me and the thing that I still feel uneasy about 
is my ability to be a whole person independent of other people, right? Like that's a, that's a fallacy. That's a lie that I think we all kind of tell ourselves. And there are some things that like, just, I don't know how somebody else can like fix the parts of us that are most vulnerable, that are most broken, that are most tender. And I think I was kind of having that internal dialogue with myself of like, how, like, what do you, what do you say? How far do you go? And I think the ironic thing is that it had nothing to do with how much I trust you, how much I value this relationship. Maybe part of it for me is like wanting to protect you and wanting to like protect our, our friendship. If there are parts of me that really do need some work that really are out of alignment, there's a part of me that feels like I, I want to get my shit together before I invite you into that. And that feels like both uh, a lie and an act of love or an act of care at the same time. Hmm. Yeah, I think mostly it sounds like a lie. I mean, I know that the intent can be caring or loving, but I think it's a lie. So I learned very early in life that my emotions didn't have a place in public. Before I was fully schooled in patriarchy, I would cry in public all the time, much to my parents' chagrin. I started directing the youth choir at like 13 years old at my church. And by the time I was 16, I would also periodically direct the adult choir. There was one adult choir rehearsal where the people were singing so lazily. <laughs> I mean, anybody that knows me knows that I really value excellence and singing lazily and flat is never going to get it, but that's not the point. We were in this rehearsal and we were singing a song together and it just sounded awful. So I stopped the song and started lecturing this room full of adults about how good God had been to them and how their singing didn't match God's goodness and how God deserved their best because that's where I was theologically at the time. But as I was doing it, I became overwhelmed with emotion. And so I started sobbing. When I got home from rehearsal, somebody had called my dad to tell him about me crying. And I still don't know who it was, but I assumed that it was a man who had been taught that his emotions didn't have a place in public and who had been taught that his emotions needed to be boxed in, not felt, not expressed. And so my dad kind of interrogated me when I got home on the reason I was crying at the rehearsal and just wanted to know, like, why are you crying? And I kept saying, I, I really don't know. I, that's just what I felt. I was talking and that's the emotion that came out or that's the feeling that I expressed. And he didn't say like, wow, way to be in touch with your emotions, kid. Keep it up. He said, you have to stop all that crying in public or people are going to start thinking something is wrong with you. People are going to think that we beat you at the house. <laughs> I mean, it, today it's funny, but it was also clear. It, it is also clear that the comment had a lot to do with him and his schooling and socialization and sort of hyper-masculinity and patriarchy and how people perceived him as a parent as well. But what it taught me at an early age is that my emotions had no place in public, that my shit was my own. And the things that made me cry, whether they were good, bad, or ugly, needed to be worked out in private. I share that because as you were talking, I think what came to mind is that we've both been schooled in similar ways, in terms of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a human, what it means to be a Christian, perhaps, that you have to work that out alone. I'm like, who taught us that? And I think it's something that we have to learn how to resist, and that can't be done alone. Like, to try to go at that alone is to perpetuate the same sort of logic that got us here in the first place. I have like four or five different thoughts running through my head all at one time. I'm trying to figure out how they all fit together. The first thing I'll say, 
I mentioned earlier, there are probably four or five people on this earth who I like really feel fully connected to. You were one of those people for me in all, in all of those instances, every one of them feels to me like grace in a, in a different way. All of those relationships formed in radically different ways. They look really different from each other. All of them, every one of them feels like something that happened to me. You asked the question earlier, like, you know, when was the moment that you realized like, you know, we could, we could be friends. I mean, I don't know. It happened to me. I don't know how the fuck it, I don't know what happened. My mom is one of those people for me. Right. And like, I didn't choose my, like, how the fuck does that happen? I don't know. It just, it just happened. It, it just happened. And so there's a part of me that like, I like, I, I don't, I don't know how it happens. Those relationships are a big reason, frankly, that like, that I believe in God, like that I believe in some sort of divine good in the world. I have been the recipient of grace in ways that I cannot explain. It's limited in scope, right? It's, it's four or five people. It's really small and it feels sacred and it feels like pure grace. And so I still don't understand it other than to say there's something else at work. And, and so, I, so I give thanks for that, but I'm also confused by it. That's sort of one part of this conversation for me. And I, and I think I would, what I'm getting at is I think I would include our friendship as one of those instances where like, I think on the surface, you and I are really different people. We had every opportunity for like three years to become friends with each other when we were in class together and, and, and we never really became very close. And then it just, it just sort of happened. And so I give thanks for that and I don't understand it. So that's one part of it. I think the other thought that kind of keeps circulating in my head, and this maybe is connected to something you were just saying a moment ago. I, you know, so part of the, when we were having these conversations uh, a month ago and there was some friction, misunderstanding, whatever it was, it was interesting to me. So part of the, and I don't think I've I communicated this to you. We've talked about this a few times. And I don't think I've communicated this to you directly. Part of the, like the internal shit that I'm trying to, to work out um, that I referenced a moment ago is the stuff related to my whiteness. When the four of us gather together and we record these conversations, there's a part of me that enters that space always aware of the ways in which my behavior perpetuates things that I hate in the world. Lots of people who are way smarter than me have talked about this phenomenon. And I mean, like, you know, white guilt. And I mean, all of that is, is real. And, and I've read that literature and I'm aware of all of that. And I think a lot about all of that. I also just feel it. Right. And so we, you know, so the four of us come together, we have these conversations and deep down there is a part of me that feels like an imposter, right? There's a part of me that feels like, what could I possibly add to this conversation? Knowing that there are things in my past, things that I've said out loud, things that I've never said out loud, but have harbored inside of my heart that I know were wrong. What do I do with that? So when you were asking me, like, are you good? There's a part of me that leans into that grace of like, man, 
I don't understand this relationship. I like this friendship just feels like a gift to me and I'm grateful for it. And I want to lean into that. And there also is this part of me that's like, bro, that's your shit to deal with. And I think the, in the midst of the grace that I feel in our friendship, we're also caught in this web of white supremacy. So you ask me how I'm doing. And my first thought is, don't work out your white guilt on the back of this black person, right? It's not this person's responsibility for you to, to help you work through all of this stuff. And so I'm trying to hold that back and I'm trying to not be just another <laughs> privileged white person who's feeling guilty and feeling anxious. And I, and I need you as a black person to like assuage all of my feelings and tell me that I'm okay, right? Like, fuck that, like fuck all of that. And you're somebody that I trust. And you're somebody that I have a relationship with that I do feel like extends beyond that. And so it's hard for me to figure out where exactly that boundary lives. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. And I feel like there is a moment where you asked me how I was doing. And there was a moment I walked right up to that. And then I was like, no, that's, that's not Brandon's to work out for you. I do remember that day and you were exactly right. But let's take a quick break and then punch back in right there when we come back. Hey there, would you like to offer feedback to the Mourner's Bench cast about how things are going so far? Or would you like to share topics that you want to hear discussed in the future? Head on over to feelatmedia.com. When you get there, scroll to the bottom of the homepage and sign up for the monthly newsletter. You will be the first to know about what's happening on the Mourner's Bench, as well as what new things are coming from Theolab Media next year. We promise not to send you too many emails, just one a month. Head on over to theolabmedia.com and sign up today. Again, that's T-H-E-O-L-A-B media.com. Let's get back into it. The most important thing for me in any friendship is trust. For the few white people who I count as friends, like I count on you all knowing that I ain't gonna carry your shit. When I like when I feel like I'm saying something that might make a white person feel good about themselves, I'm I give the disclaimer. I am not saying this to make you feel good about yourself. I enjoy making you feel like shit. Cause I think that's I think in this particular historical moment, that's one of the bridges that every black and white friendship has to cross. You have to reach the point yeah. if you're going to have a real relationship in this country in this time. Yeah. Yeah. Where you get comfortable where you get comfortable with the discomfort. Yeah. What I would say back to you or any of the white folks that I call friend. Short list. I need you to trust that if I'm walking there with you, if, if I see the road, if I if if I perceive that we're about to go in a direction that I'm not going to go there with you if I can't take it right now. And what I refuse to ever do is carry your shit. And I hear you name that as grace. Of the four or five people to whom you feel you could respond truthfully when asked, are you good? My working assumption is, like you, you've named three. You said four or five. So that some days maybe four, other days it may be five. One or two others. And I'm imagining I may be the only black person. And so how disrespectful of God, of grace, 
a blasphemous of the spirit is it to have its moment of grace. And I'm not saying this in a judgmental way. You know how I am, Malcolm. But to turn away from it. Yeah. Now, I don't view it. I like, I'm the first one that's going to be like white, folks get you, like white folk get your folk, white folk work out your own shit. I'm not here to do your homework for you. And I'm quick to tell people, especially my, uh, more so than anybody, my friends. Now, nah, I'm about to do that with you today. Right, I mean, you, you've been there when I've when me and Katie have been talking and Katie has said X, Y, and Z. That ain't my shit. And that might be hard or harsh, but it's also my way of protecting my own self and my own heart and my energy and my vibe. I don't count many people as friends, especially not white folks. And we here and in this together. And if there is shit that's so bad, so awful, so challenging, so whatever, however you choose to name it, that's related to your white shit, I'm not going to do it for you. But you can't make that decision for me. Hmm. You can't determine for me where that line is. Because hmm. that still is a function of whiteness. Hmm. If I've chosen to be your friend, knowing all that is entailed with that, every time I hear your South Carolina drawl, I'm, I'm, trust me, I know. <laughs> Don't make a choice for me. That is still going to present a limitation to our friendship and the relationship. I remember there was one episode where we actually didn't end up publishing it. And I was like, I ain't never seen Malcolm this mad. Like Malcolm pissed. We were recording. We didn't publish it. But I was like, what are you feeling right now? You was like, fuck you. I ain't feeling shit. And I'm like, but bro, you mad as fuck. Like if you, you may not be feeling shit, but your energy is mad. <laughs> and in that particular instance, I felt like that was about me. And I, didn't, and I was like, I don't know what happened, but I feel like you mad at me. And then there was a second instance where there was the same sort of energy and I was like, okay, this ain't about me. And I remember after that day, I was like, when you talking about race, who's in the room? And I think I said, because I get the sense that you are thinking about and speaking to people. And ain't none of them here. Do you remember that day? Mm-hmm. Do you find that when you're talking about race, that those, like, like for you, is that a true thing? Yeah, I mean, a hundred percent. I said earlier, I sometimes feel like an imposter in these conversations. And when I said that, what I was thinking is, I wonder what that person would say if they heard that comment come out of my mouth, knowing my past with them. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I have tried to read a lot and learn a lot about systemic racism and the, and the way race functions in 21st century America. And I can have a conversation with you all day long about that. Not to say I'm perfect, not to say that I know everything, but like, I, like, I feel like I've tried to educate myself to do the work. Man, when we have these conversations, I'm thinking about that shit I said to that person that day. Yeah. And that's the piece that I can't, you know, I don't know how to... I don't know the rationalization around that. I don't know the, like the explanation for it. You may not remember this, but the, the time that you and I sort of were having this conversation and I was not willing to kind of go all the way there with you, you asked me, like, have you talked to that person? Have you, like, what happened with that interaction? And I told you, yes, I, I have. I have I'm thinking of very specific instances with very specific people. And I feel like I have done everything that I can do to try to make that right. 
and that feels so radically insufficient. I've looked that person in the eye. I've said, I'm sorry, and I've asked for forgiveness. And that person even said, I forgive you. And I don't feel that, right? Like, I don't, I, I, I don't feel that. And I don't know what to do with that. And the ironic part about this interaction is that I feel like you are one of the four or five people that I can talk to about that. Like, just, like there aren't that many people that I feel like I would want to share that with and that I would trust to, to hear that, you know, and, and to like fully let that sink in. It's one of the parts of my heart that feels most raw. And I don't want to have that conversation with many people. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, like that ain't your shit, you know, <laughs> like that, that's not your shit. And I think the, you know, you said a minute ago, don't make that decision for me, right? That, that's a function of my whiteness to decide for you. Like, nah, we ain't going there, right? And you're a hundred percent right. And when I'm making that decision, I think, no, that's a way of me trying to protect this relationship, right? Like I like, I care about my friendship with you a lot. And so I'm willing to reject the, the grace. I'm willing to reject that to try to protect what I think is a, is a relationship that that, that really matters. That's really, I mean, that feels sacred, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. the, that's another word that I would use to describe it. And like just the irony of that, like to say that out loud is to hear how stupid it is. And it's how I feel deep down. I was talking to someone the other day about white people. And this person said, the issue with white people is that they always underestimate us. Mm. They always underestimate what we know. Damn. They yeah. always underestimate what we can take. Even those who have relationships with us always underestimate us. And like I, when I used to teach sex stuff to children, they, they, they let me teach the true love ways class. <laughs> <laughs> that's the funniest thing I've heard you say in a while. Oh my God, that's hilarious. <laughs> but I taught that thing, baby. <laughs> I even talked about some homophobic shit I got to repent about. But that's another podcast for another day. Um, the reason I bring that up is because I used to tell the children that I was teaching, so there's nothing that you can say in this class that's going to surprise me. I guarantee you. Whatever your deepest, darkest, this is in the True Love Waits class, whatever your deepest, darkest sexual secret is, I've heard it. I've seen it. I may have done it. I've watched it. There is nothing that you can say in this class that surprised me. What I need every person to do in this class is to show up fully. And I feel like with white folks, as it relates to racial shit, I got to say the same thing. Not because we're in a class, but because for the few people that I count as friends, like it's like, yo, at the end of the day, there ain't shit you can say that's going to surprise me. And what you also have to realize is because you, when you don't tell me, I'm already thinking that you real shitty. I'm like, okay, I'm thinking the worst case scenario. Anytime a white person's like, hey, I did this racist thing, I'm sitting there like, okay, you tied a black person to the back of your, tr- back of your truck and you drug them through the entire neighborhood. That's where my brain goes. Not you, Malcolm, in general. And I don't ask myself this question in the moment, but my, that's where my brain goes. But like now what I would say, so if Malcolm told me that about himself, what would that do to our friendship? It depends on what you tell me and how you tell me. My assumption is 
based on what you've already shared with me before and today, like he probably didn't drag a black person around town on the back of a truck because the person that they forgive him and they looked at him and said, hey, I got you, I'm good. But even if that was it, that ain't my shit. And if that's now a barrier to our relationship, there's a way in which we are now deifying race, white supremacy, even in the relationship, right? Mm. So because of how bad we think whiteness is, and whiteness is horrible, and because of shame and fear, as much as we rage against white supremacy, still in the intimacy of our relationship, we're still deifying it Mm. and making that more real than the possibility of whatever grace could exist between us. Mm. Whatever sacricity could exist between us. Is sacricity a word? That feels yeah, why so not? good. Yeah, let's go with it. We're allowing that to trump whatever grace could exist between us or whatever the sacred is that exists between us. Growing up, my dad, so my father owned a fruit and vegetable market in Nashville, Tennessee, Maxwell Brothers Produce. He's now retired and that business is closed. My dad ran that business with his brother, my uncle, and they had a friend. We called that friend Fireman. That wasn't his birth name, but that, that's his name, Fireman. He was a fireman, as you may have guessed. When I tell you Fireman was a good old boy, <laughs> Fireman was a good old boy. He would come in there once a week with a racist joke. Now, he would never say anything ill about black people. It was always Mexicans that were the butt of his joke or Asians, and he would use the racial slurs. And I remember my dad said one time, every time that fireman tells a joke like that, know that if we're not in the room, black people are the butt of the joke. Fireman was a nice man. If my dad and my uncle were in a pinch, fireman was going to be there. His racist shit came in the room too. But for whatever reason, even with all that shit that he probably held deep down, and he showed up sometimes on a daily basis to work for two black men. I'm not saying that makes him a saint. It makes his life complex. What gives me joy in our friendship and what makes me excited about the mourner's bench is the fact that we are all sitting here around a table. We got a lesbian woman who qualifies for AARP. Love you, Katie. <laughs> we got a black gay man. Katie's going to kick your ass. She's tried before. <laughs> a straight black man. Straight white man. We show up every single week. And we wrestle together, I think is what we're actually doing. For whatever the kingdom of God is, as Christian folks like to call it, for whatever racial justice looks like, as white progressive liberal people like to call it, we are not going to get there as a people and a world unless white people are saved, hmm. baptized three times, filled with the Holy Ghost, and transformed by the renewing of their mind. Enough water to drown you. My God. What I know is, even the white folks who are in relationships with black people who account themselves as having deep, meaningful relationships with black people, a lot of those relationships are surface level, and they're artificial. And more often than not, they are built on the white person's need to feel like they have a black friend because that makes them less racist. That's bullshit. Another function of whiteness. That's an artificial fucking friendship. And most people wouldn't name those friendships as artificial. 
And so when I choose to be in a relationship with a white person, with you, with Katie, I won't call any more names because some of y'all think y'all my friends, but I don't know y'all. The parts, you never knew me. <laughs> <laughs> Not because I am the arbiter of grace or the arbiter of that which is sacred, but because I've made a choice and I'm believing that you've made a choice. And I believe every single day that we are connecting with one another, we're making a choice. It's hard not to take it personal when it feels like there's a barrier or a blockade. I don't ever need anybody to tell me anything about themselves. I don't at all. So, so like the goal for me is not to say, David, tell me this thing from your, like, no, that's not, that's not the goal. I want to trust you to be an adult and be a human and be emotionally aware enough to know what you need. But the thing that can't happen for me is if there's this thing that is defining for you in your life that shapes our interactions, that shapes your interactions with other black people who you don't count as someone who's close to you, if there's this thing that's shaping all that shit, oh, we got to talk about that thing, baby. Because that thing got some power in here and I don't even know what it is. That's the line I try to toe, not just with you, but with anybody. I mean, and that's black, white, or otherwise. If, I got a, if there's a straight person that wants to have a gay friend, one, I'm not here for that. I'm not on the app to find your best gay friend. I'm not swiping for that. But if you got some shit with gay people and I can sense it in the room every time we come together, uh-uh, we got to either talk about that thing or you got to go. Or you got to go see your therapist and work it out so that it's not a thing when we're every time we're together. Whatever your option is, that's great. But I'm letting you know that thing is here. And either we going to wrestle with that thing together and figure out what's happening on the other side. Or we got to part ways. When I hear you talk about this invitation to lean in, this acknowledgement that you're going to bring all of yourself, I'm going to bring all of myself, and we're going to figure that shit out. That is such a gift. It's amazing and it's humbling to me to realize that I could choose against that. That my knee-jerk reaction, that my instinct is to, is to choose against that. And so I think, I, you know, I, I don't know how to wrap up this conversation. I don't, I, I don't know, I don't know what else to say other than I'm thankful, number one, I'm thankful and number two, I'm going to bring all of myself and you bring all of yourself and we'll figure out what happens. Yep. That's all I got. The goal is reciprocity. The goal is a friendship among equals. And if it ever feels like anything different, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> That's a wrap on today's episode. Please be sure to tap that subscribe button on your screen. Do it right now. And you'll stay up to date with the Mourners Bench. You'll never miss an episode because your phone will notify you. Imagine that. Come on, 2020. And if you happen to be listening on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the Mourners Bench. We would really appreciate it. We'll be back on Thursday with our Christmas Eve special. Until then, peace.